Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Achtung, achtung, welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray, and James Holland. Um, I'm at the Edinburgh Fringe. Um, That's why you're sounding a little bit hoarse. I am, because we, we started on Monday and I'm not very match fit, um, so I'm, I'm, I'm a tiny bit... Oh, we did two on the opening night, because I'm greedy. Um, anyway, the... Uh, <laughs> um, but we're, we're... Miracles of technology have allowed us to uh, put this episode together, and I'm very, very excited um, about talking to our guest today, James. I, I don't know about you. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, um, I, I've only just discovered this historian um, in the last year or so, and I am a massive fan. It's It's... It's... It's 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 popular narrative nonfiction as it should be, you know, superbly yeah. researched, absolutely no stone left unturned. You feel in incredibly good hands yeah. that this is someone who's absolutely done his homework, rolled up his sleeves, and got into the archives and done the hard yards. And yet it's combined with just superb storytelling, and it is amazing yeah. because not many people, it has to be said, have that ability to combine those two things um but james m scott has done that and, and but, it's, um, but it's three things jim because it's also this essential moral question at the heart of yes the, of this part of yes, campaign which yes, is the yes. which is the sort of um the, the the you know actually the sort of the the meat at the heart of the story anyway yes um, so the new work that james has done is black snow which is Curtis LeMay, the far bombing of Tokyo and the road to the atomic bomb. And it is, it's, it, this is B-29s over Japan um, at the latter end of 1944 and into the spring of 1945, culminating with these minutes just after midnight on the 10th of March, where comparatively few um, heavy bombers in the big scheme of com- compared to what you're sending over to, to, over the ETO, for example, are causing just unbelievable devastation. But yeah. I'm I'm sort of jumping the gun there. But yes, I should you also there, say James, <laughs> James has also written books um, about the Tokyo Tokyo raid, um, do little raid, um, about U.S. submarines in the in the war against Japan, um, and also a book which I absolutely love, which is called Rampage, which we've we've referenced a number of times um, about the uh, battle for Manila in um, January to March 1945, um, which I thought was was just stupendously good as well so 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 let's 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 welcome into the podcast then rather than talking yeah yeah you are allowed to speak as well james <laughs> well, I, I was just listening and enjoying you guys bantering on <laughs> <laughs> well but banter is what it's all about yeah. <laughs> thanks so much for having me on guys i really appreciate it james james um this this story um of the the firebombing of tokyo is it always where where the, the this, that's the centre of, of this story. And, the, and then the subsequent firebombing of Japanese cities. It's, it's a story that's been overshadowed, hasn't it, um, by, the, by the use of the atomic bombs. Is, is that what drew you to it, the fact that it's sort of... It's not been, it not been sort of erased from the historic record, but it's kind of been uh, glossed over. It absolutely has. No, and that's the thing. You, you look at what happened in Tokyo on the night of March 9th, early morning of March 10th, I mean... 16 square miles of the city are burned, 105,000 people killed. Uh, I mean, just staggering destruction. Mm. And you ask people about that and they're like, they don't know anything about it. But everybody knows Hiroshima. Everybody knows Nagasaki. And so this whole campaign just kind of gets sort of glossed over. And of course, let's be honest, 1945 is a very hectic time in the Pacific. I mean, you've got, you know, you've got Iwo Jima, you've got Okinawa, you've got Manila, then you have the atomic bombs and all. I mean, there's just so much going on. But you're absolutely right. This this story of this just insane raid just gets sort of lost in that mix. But but also within that, but when it does come up in conversation, it's it's sort of 
brutal, badass Curtis LeMay, who's the sort of bomber commander, um, sending these guys over. Did we really need to do it? Did we need to kind of sort of take it? You know, this was this was the Americans who've kind of, you know, they're really into precision daylight bombing and they have their morals and they don't want to do kind of, you know, carpet bombing. And here they are completely turning that on their head and just slaughtering innocent Japanese. And, and what I hadn't appreciated was how, you know, it's inevitably it's 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 not as straightforward as that. And one of the big things which I hadn't appreciated at all was just how tricky a place this is to bomb, not in terms of the distance from, you know, Saipan or wherever, the bases and Tinium, but but the weather, the weather over, you know, like four days in a month where you've actually got visibility. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, Whoever it's, knew. It's, it's it's horrible for for bombers. I mean, you literally there are some days where you have three days of visibility, and if you're trying to do daylight precision bombing, it simply won't work because not only do you have such limited days, you have to predict when those days are going to be, and there's no way you can do yeah. that. And so, and then you add on top of that that nobody understood until they started bombing was that Japan has these incredible jet streams up in the heavens. You know, that are blowing at 200 miles per hour, which just totally wrecked bombing accuracy. And so and then on top of that, you've got these massive distances that these air crews are flying, you know, uh, 1,500, 1,600 miles one way just to Tokyo. You know, they're flying in a B-29, which is a revolutionary new plane. But at this point in the war is prone to lots of problems, engine fires, things like that. So you just have and then, of course, the Japanese are flying raids against uh, the Mariana Islands from Iwo Jima. And so really all of these things kind of combined to make this just an incredibly daunting bombing operation uh, in the early, in, in late 1944, in the early stages of this campaign. And, and so much capital. I mean, not just, not just uh, money, but sort of uh, uh, inter-service political capital has been spent on this campaign, hasn't it? That the Air Force is desperate to prove that it's, uh, that it, well, first of all, that it needs to be... Uh, all, all, all these people like Hap Arnold and Billy Mitchell are all mobilised around the idea of the Air Force being its own thing and separating from the army. And and, and one thing that really struck me is, is you know, the, the B-29 gets off to a bad start. They really have to work hard to get the, the airplane viable. Um, the bombing gets off to a bad start. They really they have to find a solution to that problem as well. And that so much of this is driven by people... I, 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 came to wondering if they were trying to win the war or, or win those battles, political battles and industrial, indu, military industrial complex battles, as, as we'd call them now. And that the war is sort of a, winning the war is a byproduct of the Air Force proving itself and, and Arnold proving himself right about the B-29 project, which he'd staked everything on. Yeah. No, I mean, it is. I mean, the B-29 cost about $3.7 billion, making it the single most expensive weapon system for the U.S. during the war. I mean, it costs more money than the atomic bomb. I mean, putting this revolutionary bomber into production, I mean, America put it into production before they even knew if it could fly. And of course, it on one of its early test flights, it crashes into a Seattle meatpacking plant. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. So That's it's not just, a good moment, these, is it? Oh, it is, you know. And so, I mean, in order to build this bomber in the quantity needed to fight this war, I mean, the United States actually built an entire city in Kansas just to house this army of workers. I mean, they had to build schools, movie theaters for entertainment and everything. So, I mean, there's just there's all this capital that's gone into it. And of course, as you noted, all this is because there's, you know, Hap Arnold's lifelong quest has been to prove that the air service should be separate from the army. And in order to prove that, he needs the the Air Force to own a share of victory. Uh, and of course, he's fighting against the Navy right here because, you know, so much, you know, the, the U.S. Army kind of has its domain staked out in Europe. And so the Navy has really staked out its territory in the Pacific. And Hap Arnold is kind of right there. So you've got this huge inter-service rivalry between the Navy and the uh, Army Air Service as well. So, I mean, all these competing interests at the exact same time. But you, you have those, but but there is something bigger going on here, which is this notion of steel, not flesh, this idea of using mechanisation. I mean, air power is absolutely central to the United States um, um, war aims, just as it is for Britain as well. And, and, you know, one of the main reasons for that is because, you know, if you can get get bombers to come over and do a lot of the hard yards and you don't have to have a slaughter of a generation like you did in in, in the First World War, you know, which, which still has a... Has a uh, an impact on the United States as well, although obviously a much more kind of violent impact on 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 Britain and, and obviously France and whatever. But but 
you, the, the the point of it is 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 to make life easier for the troops on the ground, isn't it? Is is you know if you can destroy the means of waging war, then that lessens their ability to wage war, which then means that the, the, the infantrymen have got to jump out of landing craft or or have got to kind of sort of you know get across Luzon or whatever are in theory going to have a have an easier time of things, and and you know broadly speaking, that proves to be true. I mean, you know. An infantryman or a marine on on Peleliu or Iwo Jima might have a different view of that, but overall, the numbers of people that are actually in the firing line is comparatively small compared to service troops and CBs and supply people and people driving trucks and people baking um, um, airfields, you know, out of crushed coral or, or whatever it might be. Uh, and there's no question, surely, that the the strategic um, the strategic air campaign does have a massive benefit to the Allies' war effort. It's just that it's not the complete effort. It doesn't singularly create victory on its own. It's a, it's a massive contribution. And I don't think anyone would doubt the contribution of Allied air power to the eventual victory. It's just, it's not in its own right. That's the point. Yeah, and you know, it was sold during the lead up to World War II as that, as this sort of panacea, of this idea that you can kind of come in and you could collapse either the German or the Japanese economy like this house of cards by picking a few key industries. And of course, you know, the, all the rubber meets the road when the war begins. And so, and and as you know, air power is a the air war against Germany is a slog. I mean, it goes on year after year. And Arnold then really then shifts his focus to the Pacific, which is, okay, I've got a second opportunity, another bite of this apple. I can show that we can we can knock Japan out of this war before we have to do what we had to do in Manila or before we have to do what we had to do on Iwo Jima and Okinawa. And I think there is, particularly by 45, you're really just seeing, I mean, the violence in the Pacific during that time period is so extreme. I mean... You know, we talked a little bit about uh, about Rampage and the Battle of Manila. I mean, 100,000 yeah, yeah, yeah. people killed in 29 days. You know, the, the creativity mostly by the Japanese. urban bloodletting. Mostly by the Japanese, yeah. And, and the creativity that went into that kind of siege warfare. I mean, it's like out of medieval times, you know, <laughs> fortresses, turning, turning you know, skyscrapers yeah. into fortresses. I, I was just watching the first episode of House of Dragons the other day, and I was seeing, you know, Damon takes his police out and they go and slaughter everyone. <laughs> and, you know, and I was thinking, this is Manila. I mean, you know, it's kind of actually not <laughs> not that different, really, is it? I mean, it, it really isn't. People with swords hacking pe- innocent people to death. I mean... That's what was going on in 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 Manila in in kind of February 1945, and it was an absolute horror story. I mean, I, I suppose you know one of the things that 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 Al and I have talked a lot about on this podcast over the last couple of years is this kind of fear of having to invade the Japanese home islands, which starts to kind of pervade everything. You know, we 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 see what happens in Peleliu. You know, you know, it's supposed to be a matter of days, and it takes kind of ten weeks, and it's just a total's, you know, nightmare to beat all nightmares. Then you've got Iwo Jima. Then you've got, as you say, you know, um, Manila. Then you've got Okinawa. You know, in April, uh, April to June, and the closer you get to Japan, the more beaten the Japanese are, the harder they fight, the more brutal, the more violent the fighting is. And so you can understand why, from from an ally point of view and from a US point of view, you're just thinking the last thing we flipping want to do is be fighting through cities on or any territory at all on the Japanese home islands. So, yeah, okay, we were all really into kind of daylight bombing, precision bombing, but it isn't working. Uh, and what's the alternative? You know, it, it's it's horrible that we're going to have to do this and destroy these cities, but if it's kind of our boys or Japanese, you know, we didn't pick this fight in the first place, that would be the argument, then that's the brutal choice we have to make. Yeah, and you know, the thing is, it, it, it's it's an oversimplification, I think, that happens a lot when they just say, well, LeMay makes this decision that he's going to burn Japan, and it's just this yeah. 180 degree reversal, when the reality is America had actually been planning for this for a while. I mean, you know, we realize, when the war begins, we're like, all right, we need to come up with a new flame weapon. Therefore, you know, napalm is invented. Yeah, napalm. First test, yes, first tested on the soccer field at Harvard, you know. And then, all right, well, if we're going to make realistic tests, we need to build a mock Japanese village out in the deserts of Utah in the summer of yeah. 1943. And then let's burn it down repeatedly and test it. I mean, so in the same time, war planners are, are picking apart Japanese cities and 
by how flammable they are. I mean, you know, yeah. and so, so much so that, I mean, they actually brought in, you know, after the big 1923 earthquake and fire that burns up Yokohama and Tokyo, I mean, the, the, the War Department goes out and finds the insurance adjusters from that fire to ask them questions and interview them about like, hey, what was your experience like? What made Tokyo so flammable? So then they right. prepare these huge dossiers on every single city there, literally breaking them down by, you know, flammable district by flammable district, you know. And so when LeMay does make this decision, he's got a brand new bomb that has been tested on a mock Japanese city. And he's got a file folder on every single city that lays out precisely where to aim and what to do. All he has to do is implement it. And so, you know, it's that the, the pressure for America to move into the firebombing phase had really been building up. It had been building up on LeMay's predecessor, Haywood Hansel, who refused well, to yeah, do that, it that, that, so, 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 so he's really interesting. I mean, tell us a little well, bit I, about yeah, him. Yeah, I wanted to talk about him. because He's a fascinating character. Because he, he, he sort of personifies the switch, doesn't he? The, 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 yeah. the, the, the switch from trying to do it in a, in a you know, in a sort in of a, moral, yeah, kind of in inverted a moral, commas, ethical moral, way. Ethical, moral way, and and the and the, he, uh, well, t- tell us who he is, and and and, uh, and he's uh, part of the bomber men as well, isn't he? Correct, yeah, and yeah, that's one of the things I really like about this story is you have really three dominant personalities at play here. You've got Haywood Hansel, you've got Curtis Lemay, and you have Hap Arnold, who's the head of the Army Air Service. And of course, Hap Arnold is one of my favorites in that. You know, here he is as head of the Army Air Force, of course, commanding this massive global strike force. But he actually learned how to fly from the Wright brothers. Yeah, well, you know, that's I mean, yeah, you know, I mean, the pretty whole good. reason that early aviators wore goggles was because Hap Arnold got hit in the eye with a bug when he was landing. So he literally <laughs> goes from like having his Sunday dinners in Ohio with Orville <laughs> and Wilbur Wright to commanding this. And so he's sort of the presiding figure. And then you've yeah. got Haywood Hansel, who's his former chief of staff, who is one of the bomber mafia, one of the guys that between World War One and World War Two came up with and preached this gospel of precision bombing and, you know, you know, economies collapsing and things of that nature. And he is a true believer. He's also a, a sort of a, a member of the American army aristocracy. His father had been an army surgeon. His family had fought all the way from every revolution. And he's a devout Christian as well, isn't he? Is that right? Uh, yes. He's a, I think he's Episcopalian, as I recall. Yeah. So he's just, you know, he is a true believer, an acolyte of precision bombing. And he, of course, goes to the war in Europe and it exposes all of his flaws, not only in his thinking, but also really in his ability as a commander. Because yeah. he is at heart, he's a war planner. He is not a predator. And right. when you put him in that situation, it's a struggle for him. One of his subordinates is this young guy named Curtis LeMay, who's this dark-haired, quiet guy who turns out to be this really terrific combat commander who is everything that Hansel is not. Yep. He grew up dirt poor in Ohio. He put himself through college by working all night in a steel mill. Yes, he's got an that's engineering amazing. For, I mean, this is incredible because he's he's working from kind of 5 p.m. till 4 or something every night, isn't he? And then getting up and doing his studies. And because he's a little bit over, because he's been skipping the first lesson in the morning because he's got to get some sleep at some point, he's, he's 10% short of his degree, which he then subsequently finishes later while he's in the Air Force. I mean... Jesus, I mean, talk about commitment. I mean, oh, he's, he's, it's he's impressive. A, he's got an incredible work ethic. He's just dogged. And, uh, and, 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 you know, and the thing about LeMay, too, is that, like, if you read his personal letters, I mean, his work during World War II come at tremendous personal sacrifice. I mean, he's constantly writing about how tired he is. He's, and remember, he's in his 30s at this point. He's a young guy, but he's writing home to his wife. He's like, when this war ends, I'm going to sleep forever. And his letters to his wife are very short, aren't they? And she complains. Oh, yeah, I mean, they're like, they're like a paragraph long. Yeah, he's yeah, like, yeah, well, yeah. somebody's <laughs> got to defeat the Germans. <laughs> Just stay at home and keep the home fires burning and I'll get on with winning the war. Yeah, yeah it's amazing. One of, the, one of the things that struck me um, uh, uh, about him from, from the book, um, James, is this, this sort of, that he's a brainwave guy, that he'll sit and wait and figure out and not sleep and mull over an idea and then and then suddenly the solution pops into his head so the the thing of the german flat gun being able to uh zero in in 10 seconds yeah 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 yeah, yeah. It, 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 tell us that because that's an extraordinary sort of man man with man having a moment of inspiration yeah and it is i mean and that again it gets back to lemay's engineering mindset he's a problem solver and so of course you know he gets over to uh, to england in, in, in 42 and of course all the american pilots are saying yeah hey if, if you fly a straight course for 10 seconds you're you're toast 
And so he goes, he finds, he, he managed to bring his artillery manual from ROTC at Ohio State all the way with him over there. And he yep. goes by and he starts calculating. He realizes that like, this is just, this is, these are made up numbers and that it's going to take the Germans, you know, far, far longer to be able to calculate exactly where they are, sight their guns and all that. And he really kind of dispels that myth. Uh, and he tells his guys, and he says, and, and, but like so much of LeMay does, he says, I'm not going to send you up there to do it. I'll fly in front. Yeah. I will show you that I'm going to do it. He's like a Jimmy Doolittle. There are these certain yeah. commanders that if they're going to send you to do this, they're going to do it with you and they're going to be at the front. And of course he does that. He does the same thing with bomber formations. You know, of course, everybody thought the B-17 was going to be this, just, you know, this, this, you know, aerial, you know, workhorse that was not, the fighters were not going to be able to get it. Of course, all that's wrong. So yeah. he's figures out how to align his bombers in, in such a way to maximize the defensive nature of it. So he's always a troubleshooter like that. And of course, his superior at that time is Haywood Hansel. In fact, in LeMay's personnel files, Hansel actually wrote a commendation letter thanking him for all of his hard work. You know? <laughs> and so, so these two guys, you know, they're, they're working together and you're, they're completely different types of individuals, completely different types of commanders working together in Europe. And then of course their roles flip when it comes to the Pacific. I suppose the big question is, is why is um, Hayward Hansel sent out to take charge of the B-29s and the bombing of, of Japan when he is? Because you'd have thought by that point people would have seen his strengths and weaknesses and realised that he's not the right man. You know, particularly if they're also back in the States, you're kind of planning how to napalm a, napalm a Japanese city. That suggests that the Hansel way is kind of not going to, is, is not the way that they're now thinking. Well, I think a lot of it comes down to the fact that he had a close relationship with Hap Arnold. You know, he had worked, you know, and the air service was small at that point. Of course, during World War II, it explodes in size and whatnot. But he had come up during that interwar period when it was small. And Arnold, you know, Arnold took a whole bunch of these young men under his wing, so to speak, and, you know, kind of nurtured them. And Hansel was one of them. And he'd served as his chief of staff. And so he... So you, you send someone you trust. You send somebody you trust, you like him. He is a, everybody would say he's a really smart guy. He's a really, he's a thinker and all that. But by the time he gets out to the Pacific, you know, the job isn't about thinking. The job is about operating and performing. And that's where he just, he can't do right. it. Yeah. You know, he runs into all these obstacles that we talked about, you know, the air, the clouds, the jet streams, the Japanese raids from Iwo Jima. Of course, the bases aren't built out. The runways aren't fully done, the hard stands and, and whatnot. And it just... It overwhelms him, and there's also there's 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 troublesome but brilliant and highly respected bomber commanders, bomber leaders below him who are his his um, subordinates. I think it's O'Donnell is it O'Donnell? Yeah, Rosie O'Donnell. Yeah, Rosie O'Donnell, yeah. who's who's clearly a you know brilliant combat leader, but is just absolutely chalk and cheese with with Hansel, and and is going over there saying you know we're we're kind of busting our ass to go over to Tokyo. We're getting attacked by lots of fighters, and we're achieving diddly squat this is a complete waste of time this is this is simply not going to work in these conditions it's it's all very well having your highfalutin kind of ethics about about precision bombing but if it's if it's a not very precise and b not very effective and all that's happening is we're losing b29s and, and frankly more importantly crews then this is the wrong route to go isn't it but 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 hansel is so kind of evangelical about it he's like he's like sort of la 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 i'm not listening I mean, at this point, it becomes this like this fixation, this obsession yes. for him that he just can't he can't adjust his thinking in order to say, all right, it's not working. I need to I need a different way to problem solve here. And he just can't do it because he's so married to his strategy that he developed and whatnot. And he's convinced that if he's just given more time and more time, he can break through and he can break through. And yet sometimes you just can't solve that equation with the tools you're given and that's it. And O'Donnell of course is and one of the things I found fascinating going through O'Donnell's papers is he had binders of all the letters he wrote to all the families of the airmen who didn't come back. Yeah. You were saying I something mean, like 1200 like or something. I mean, that's well, hundred pages of these things. I mean, and so, you know, he was flying these missions with his men, you know, through all of Japan's flak, through their fighters dealing with that. And his diary likewise is just filled with just, I mean, you know, how angry he was and hostile he was to Hansel for for, the, for blaming him for this stuff. So, and of course, all this leads to Hap Arnold saying, you know what? Finally, he he realizes I've got the wrong guy for this job right now, and he lets him go. And that's when he brings in LeMay. And of course, you know, LeMay is the combat operator. And uh, But to LeMay's credit, you know, and there's this great, there's this meeting, because you have to remember, like, 
you know, LeMay and Hansel know each other. You know, they're, I mean, they're, they're friendly. And so when LeMay lands there on Guam at this point in early 45, you know, and he's told he's going to replace Hansel. I mean, you can imagine sort of this awkward face-to-face moment. And of course, Hansel's always the gentleman. Of course, you know, he loves Shakespeare. You know, he loves writing poetry. He's just this polite Southern gentleman. And of course, he says to LeMay, you know, I don't blame you for this. I recognize what's going on, but I'm going to caution you. He says, we, we will be remembered not for whether we win the war, because we're going to win it, but we will be remembered for how we win the war. And he admonishes him to stay with daylight precision bombing. And LeMay responds back and says, look, you know, look, that's, that's the doctrine. That's the strategy. I'm going to do that until it doesn't work. And that's and so LeMay, a lot of a lot of people say, well, you know, LeMay comes in immediately. America's tactics change. And that's not really true. I mean, yeah. LeMay he, comes he, does, in he adds also training, doesn't he? But he still sends out daylight, daylight rays to start off with. Exactly. He takes Hansel, what Hansel's doing, and he tinkers with it. He's, he's Remember, he's a problem solver. He's like, all right, we'll, we'll bring the bombers down from 30,000 feet to 25,000 feet. We'll move what time takeoffs are. We'll improve training. You know, we'll improve maintenance. Uh, we'll, we'll beef up our radar operators' capabilities. And But time and again, the results are the same. He cannot break through. He cannot get bombs on target. And that's when the pressure is continuing to build on him from Washington of course, at this time period, you know, the Battle of Manila is literally winding down. I mean, that's the backdrop of all this, the bloodshed in the yep, Philippines. Yep. And that's when LeMay says, OK, I need a new variable in this equation. I got to, or I got to change this whole equation. And, and, and so that and so he again, he has another brainwave, doesn't he, to, to fly low at night with incendiaries and to and to attack. I mean, what's interesting is about the, the, the Akasuka part of uh, Tokyo that, that he decides to attack is all the cottage industry, and this is a this is another thing that 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 um, I, I was really struck by because after all, we we you know here in the UK, whenever you talk about strategic bombing, it comes back to it comes always comes back to Dresden. The Dresden is the sort of is the sort of watermark of the British strategic bombing campaign, uh, which we just simply seem incapable of getting past. You can just, it, it always yeah. comes up. Uh, and, Which Hamburg and, is really worse in a lot of ways. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But, 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 but what's, ex- you know, and then Hamburg is, you know, whenever anyone brings up Dresden, I say, well, what do you know about, you know, what about Hamburg? Where there's a firestorm two years earlier, 45,000 people killed. And it is a major industrial and, and uh, 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 trade, a port, you know, it's an, a, a, an obvious target. But what I didn't realise about, you know, Japanese industries, it's so decentralised and relies so much on workshops and people's foundries in their, you know, essentially on, on their own property, that, that, that you, you can attack a residential area and it's an industrial area. And that sort of distinction that the RAF, because the RAF do their, you know, their de-housing, as they like to call it, um, uh, you know, because it's, all of this is cloaked in euphemism. That was the thing that I was really struck by, is, is that Japan is... You could argue that this is an industrial target, this this residential area, by virtue of the way um, it's full of workshops and people's smithies and stuff. Absolutely, it is. I mean, literally 50% of Tokyo's production comes from these types of factories. And these are tiny, a lot of these are employ five people or less. You know, they're making like the pin for a hand grenade or the trigger for a rifle. It's these tiny little parts. And of course, Japan has no real sense of zoning like we have in modern countries today where you have all your industrial area in one, your residential in another, and you have commercial in another. I mean, it's all intermixed. And it's just this huge sea of rooftops. And it's just, you know, a workshop downstairs, a house above, you know, right next to, you know, your, your corner grocery mart and your everything else. And so it's all intermixed like that. And so, uh, and so that really does, I mean, that's, and that is ultimately what LeMay sets his sights on. And of course, you know, the same time his target area includes all that. It's also largely it's it's like eighty seven percent residential. So I mean it is a yeah. huge residential area as well. Um, but for Tokyo, and there's really no greater example out of Japan for that cottage industry mix than Tokyo. I mean that is where it's dominant. Um, so yeah, and that's what he sets his sights on. And it's the capital city, of course, and you know it's um you know it's it's the, it's the seat of government, isn't it, and everything. I mean it's, it's- politics, culture. Everything goes through Tokyo, and in fact, there was a. They brought in when they were when they were analyzing whether or not to hit Tokyo. They brought in this guy who was an OSS officer who had spent time there, and he said, "Tokyo, he said, beyond just its fact, it's the seat of government, seat of banking, seat of industry, university, and all that. It's the psycholo- psychology of Tokyo. Everywhere yeah. throughout Japan, Tokyo has like a like you knock Tokyo out, 
it will have a psychological impact throughout the nation. And so, uh, and, and, and they're absolutely right on that. We're sort of getting close to the to, to talking about the fateful night. I mean, LeMay's been in post, you know, a couple of months, less, less than, a, you know, seven weeks, hasn't he, at this point, something like that. Mm-hmm. Yep. And w- what is the response of the crews when they say, OK, right, we're now going to attack at night, we're going to go low level and we're going to try this thing called napalm? Oh, they're horrified because, you know, for, you know, for all this time, they've been flying, you know, the lowest is about 25,000 feet, but often up at 30,000 feet. And that distance is their safety net because the fighters can't get up there. It's harder for the flak. I mean, it is that safety line. And here LeMay is saying, I'm going to take you from way up here in the heavens all the way down to just a little bit above rooftop, just under a mile. And we're going to send you into the enemy's capital city. It's like kicking a hornet's nest. So what height um, are they told that they're going to go in? They range from about five to 8,000 feet. And so, right. so he has that to stagger is really every- low, isn't it? Oh, yeah. For, he has to stagger bomb, everybody low. so there aren't any collisions. Yeah. So they go in as low as 5,000 feet. They, go, they, they lose. They take some of the guns off the plane so they can free up more uh, uh, weight in order to be able to carry more bombs. Uh, they literally uh, they, they take away the defensive formations. They're going to go in singly and whatnot. They're, you know, but, but LeMay, you know, and people are saying it's a suicide mission. His own artillery officers are telling him you're going to lose 70% of your force. I mean, that's like 2,000 lives, 200 bombers. But LeMay is, again, he's always, he's, he's a problem solver. And he says, you know, I'm not a gambler. He says, I take calculated risks. He's like, I've looked at their, I've looked at our reconnaissance photography. I'm not seeing low altitude guns. They don't have good night fighters, if hardly at all. And plus, for all these months we've been flying all the way up here, if we during the day, if we come in at night and low, it is going to be a sucker punch. And that is what he's gambling on, that element of surprise. Tactical surprise. And totally. Because and if you can achieve tactical surprise, you hold all the aces. Bingo. And that's exactly what he's really gambling with there. And so he kind of, you know, he sits through these meetings that afternoon and the guys are yelling, this is suicide, you know, and, and whatnot. He's just sitting there smoking a cigar. Like, nope, I've, I've made it, that. I've taken that risk. I get it. That said, he, he stresses out more on this mission than he ever has. He's up all night. You know, he doesn't go to bed. He's, he's literally roaming the operations center. He literally goes back to his his, uh, his quarters, gets a soft drink. I mean, it, it's weighing on him. He, he does understand that there are significant risks in this operation. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. How ready are, are, are the Japanese in Tokyo 
for a raid of this kind? I mean, what what, what are the civil defences? I mean, what, what what are there in terms of air raid shelters and this kind of stuff? It's terrible. And it's astonishing that here we are in 1945 and the Japanese have not learned any lessons out of the European theater on this. You know, they put no money into developing any kind of public shelter system. I mean, they basically give out blueprints to all the residents and say, you can dig this little foxhole in your yard. But, you know, when it's 2000 degrees, that thing isn't going to do any good. So, uh, you know, they really don't. um, Their fire department is way below standards where it should be. They're really relying on neighborhood block associations to try and fight fires using bags of sand and buckets of water with relay systems. So, I mean, they're just woefully, and, and, and quite frankly, they, they deserve a lot of the blame for, for how bad the, the situation becomes because they simply had not prepared. And it, again, it's astonishing considering where we are in the war at this point and what has happened in Europe. And, what, and, and how Tokyo is constructed. I mean, it's not like it's a stone city of wide boulevards, is it? No, it's a wood pile. <laughs> I, mean, you know, I mean, they really, their construction, their, their density, I mean, the Asakusa is 135,000 people per square mile. I mean, packed in there. Their architectural standards is 98% wooden paper. You know, they have their their average street distances are about 12 feet, like an alleyway. So there's no fire breaks. It has, for a major metropolitan city, it has like 2% of its space is given over to parks. So there's, once a fire starts, there's nothing to stop it. But but it's striking in a way that they haven't learned from the earthquake because it's it's a fire that, that you know, leave leave what's gone on in the Western theatre out of this. You know, that their own experience of urban disaster um, tells them that they need fire breaks in the city and that, you know, it's, it is a tinderbox. It's, it seems, it seems, I mean, obviously the Japanese government has got other things on its mind than protecting its population, hasn't it? Yeah, exactly. And that's the thing is like America learned more from the 1923 earthquake and fire than Japanese leaders did. <laughs> and so, and you know, initially after that earthquake and fire, they did try to change their building standards and they did try to do add some more park spaces and whatnot. But they abandoned those efforts pretty quickly once a recession set in and building materials became scarce. And they just fell back on what they had done for over centuries, which is the same type of architecture, the same type of building materials. And again, they just they simply rebuilt this wood pile uh, that LeMay would take advantage of. I mean, the the, the night the night of the raid on the ground though is um, I mean, it's uh, and a lot of the flyers describe it as a scene for Dante, don't they? That the, the, a lot of the airmen exactly. call it that. I mean, the the, the accounts of, of of the of the firestorm on the ground are absolutely diabolical. They are scenes straight from hell, aren't they? They absolutely are, and they. Um, and that was a part of the story I really wanted to tell, because that's a part of the story I don't think gets enough attention in the previous literature on this, is what was it like for those Jap- those Japanese civilians there? And so I spent time in Tokyo when I was doing my research, doing interviews. Uh, and, and one of the things that people, that really stood out was how loud it is, is that wow. it's like a well, freight the, the, the train. The burning. The burning. It's like a freight train. And of course, you know, in this superheated air becomes like literally people's clothing begins to burn. Their hair catches on fire. I mean, your eyelashes singe and burn. And so just I mean, from the heat in the air, just from the heat in the air. And so people would douse themselves with water out of firefighting cisterns and their clothes would dry right away. And so, you know, and of course, all these like, you know, foxhole type shelters, you know, provided no protection when the temperatures rose as high as literally 2800 degrees in some spots. You know, it's hot enough that concrete breaks down, that asphalt liquefies, that the coins in people's pockets fuse together. And so a lot of people then took shelter in sort of the handful of concrete structures like train stations and schools and things like that. And And initially those do provide shelter. And they're looking out and they can see the fires devouring the neighborhoods around them. And then the heat gets so intense that the glass in the windows begins to melt. And the sparks start to pour in. And of course, you know, a firestorm, one of the trademark things about it is the wind, because all that hot air is escaping upward and it creates this vacuum. And so all this colder air rushes in from the sides. And those those wind speeds can be like hurricane force winds. So those winds start blowing into these buildings and then hallways and staircases become like chimneys. And so literally afterwards, you you would find an an auditorium of a school where everybody had been reduced to just ashes and bones and an occasional metal helmet. That was left. I mean, they were they were at, they were calculating helmets and buttons and trying to figure out how many people had died in certain places. And so it really is. I mean, the experience on the ground is just. I mean, just horrifying for those people that that yeah. went through it. 
And yeah. of course, the airmen are, aren't, are, are not far above. You know, the, here they are just a few thousand feet above. Their bombers are being battered by this. You know, these thermal updrafts are just pounding on them. It's like being in a boxing ring. And of course, as their Bombay doors are open, they're pulling in all this smoke and air from down below. And they can smell it. You know, they oh. can smell barbecuing flesh. Yeah. You know, the horses, yeah. the dogs, the moms and the dads. And so, I mean, as, as, as Captain Charles Phillips later said, Quote, it was the smell of death. And so, I mean, and for so long, so these bombers have been separated by miles between themselves and their targets. And here they are just literally getting battered by it and able to even smell it. So it's a really intense experience. It's, 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 it's just, and, and the descriptions you, you, you write mm. of it are, you know, that they, they make uncomfortable reading. It has to be said. It's, it's incredibly yeah. graphic. Yeah. Um, and you, it, it's incredibly graphic, and, and it's, a, it's a very strange thing because on one level it's completely unimaginable, and yet you are there with the Japanese civilians down below, and so you sort of can imagine it, and, it, and it's, I mean, it, it is absolutely horrific, isn't it? Yeah, no, it is. And, like, again, that's the experience I wanted, I wanted to communicate that. Because yeah. when I started this project, that's what I was like, you know, what was that like? I mean, what is it like to survive a firestorm like that? And, you know, it really comes down to luck. I mean, that's the thing, like, there's no, you know, how people lived and how people died really came down to their own physiology, where they were. I mean, because yep. you had some cases like this one guy, for instance, was in a bathroom in a school where literally they were dousing themselves with the water from the toilet tanks and whatnot. And of course, everybody passes out because all the oxygen just vanishes and the toxic fumes. And the next day he actually wakes up and here he is with three dozen people and he's the only one who lived. It's like what made him live and somebody else died. Yeah. You know, one woman I interviewed, you know, she got caught in this firestorm. And so her father kind of draped himself over like a cape almost. And what happened is a lot of times as the fire exceeded, people huddled together, like in the middle of a street, because the buildings on both sides, for example, would be burning. And so they would be in the center of a street and they would huddle together. And what had happened is she ends up in the bottom of this big huddle. And the next morning, her father pulls her out and everybody that's on top of them had just been carbonized. Yet they had been in this cocoon of bodies My underneath God. everybody and survived. And yeah. so it's like, why did some people survive? Why did others not? I mean, it must have been astonishing to talk to her. I mean, what, I mean, what was her? I mean, I mean how exactly. was she all, all these years later talking about it? I mean, what? what I mean, was it? I mean, was, she was, was terrific. I mean, actually, she, yeah, and she gave me so much of her time. We had dinner. You know, we interviewed for hours. I mean, that, and that was one of the things I found is that so many of these survivors just were so generous with their time with me. Um, and I'll never forget another one of them, Mrs. Nagata. She had actually, she had evacuated outside the city. And so Japan actually evacuated third through sixth graders outside the city. And uh, so she was in a temple, you know, and of course her parents and every family were all in Tokyo and they were all wiped out. And she still had the last letter she'd ever received from her sister. And she brought that to our interview. And her sister had actually seen, you know, LeMay had flown us a, a test raid shortly before the, to the big one in Tokyo. And says. So Mrs. Nagata's sister had seen that and she wrote a letter saying, I could never say this, you know, I get in trouble for saying this, but it was so beautiful. They were like sparklers. And of course, that would be the last communication she ever had from her family. Wow. And so, I mean, you know, it's just these, these heart-wrenching stories about it. And so, um, you know, but I was so grateful that folks were so willing to share that with me yeah. so I could include yeah. it in this history. And, and and James, tell me. I mean, you know, there is a sort of um, there's a debate that ongoing debate about the culpability of ordinary German peoples to what happened. You know, firstly with their uh, with, with letting Hitler get away with it. Secondly, their part in the Holocaust, all the rest of it. Where do you think Japanese civilians sit in all this? I mean, how much are they answerable for? You know, the government for Tojo for the kind of warped Bushido mantra for Hirohito all the rest of it I mean you know where, where, do, where do they lie in this I mean because one of the features of course of of, of the Japanese war is is their own brutality towards yeah. towards their enemies you know whether it be whether we'd be talking about the rape of Nanking and you know just the absolutely appalling treatment of the Chinese to you know to allied POWs to, to literally you know to Filipinos to whoever ever, ever happened to sort of get in their way where, where, where do where Tokians, is that the right word, Tokioans? Yeah. <laughs> where, where, where do they sit in all this? What's your judgment? And the, yeah, and that's a, that's a great question. I and mean, one I've not put a lot of thought into. And you're right, one of the things I've always wrestled with is, you know, I lived in Japan. And so you know, here you have this culture that prides itself on the tea ceremony and on flower arranging and whatnot. I mean, 
all these things that are just moments of you know beauty and whatnot. And yet on the flip side of that coin is just ultimate savagery, you know, like Manila and things like that. And in Tokyo, you know, of course, Japan is a democracy really in name only. And in, in that, in that, you know, people can vote, but it really it's, it's a handful of individuals that are really driving so much of Japan's policy in World War II. And by that point in the war, the average civilian, uh, and I've got this great quote, actually, this, the Philippine, one of the Filipino diplomats who was there in Tokyo has this wonderful diary about it and said that the average Japanese person at that point just had their head down because life in Japan had become such a struggle uh, that the, the daily caloric intake had plummeted. Uh, people, there, were, there wasn't any food left. The submarine blockade had cut off, you know, the importation of everything. Well, 88% of GDP is on, 88% of GDP is spent on war. Yeah, on and so the, the average people are like picking flowers out of, and greens out of cemeteries to eat. And so most of the average people were just like, their heads down, focusing on day-to-day survival, waiting for this war to end. And, 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 and it kind of oblivious to some extent to it all because they're so focused on their individual survival. And you really do begin to see that sort of social fabric unraveling, particularly when the firebombs all begin. And you just suddenly, there's like this alarm bell goes off and you see this mass evacuation from the cities. I mean, you really see the hollowing out of all of Japan's urban areas and then this burdening on the uh, the countryside and whatnot as well. So it uh, it has this just cataclysmic effect on their society. But, but what, what effect does it have on on the Japanese government, because after all, this is a this is a raid unprecedented in its in its scale, its devastation, and also the, a, a plain vulnerability a demonstration of Japanese vulnerability, and that they've you know they've lost it. If there's an air war, they've lost it. Um, uh, it should you, have had a bigger effect than it did. Well, <laughs> that, that, that's, that's what's the, but that's what's curious that's about it, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, no, it really should have. And it was just, it, it, it's amazing to me when you look at it because, you know, the submarine war has really actually killed Japan's economy by the, by the summer of 1944. I mean, they've really kind of mm. reached the point where they're, they're beginning the death spiral. But it's hard for people to visualize defeat just through the lack of imports and whatnot. And so the fire raids bring that reality home in a visceral way because yeah. suddenly you have burned cities, you have bloated bodies in rivers, you have horror. And it it, 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 it it illustrates that level of defeat. But it's so surprising that after that March raid, nothing more happens to that level. You, you don't see a rush to the uh, to, to, to wanting to surrender and to negotiate and things like that. In fact, it goes on for several months after this. I mean, LeMay, he just keeps on punching, you know, city after city after city. I mean, Tokyo, this raid burned 16 square miles. This is only one of only six raids against Tokyo. Mm. By the end of May... 56 square miles of Tokyo are gone. All right. Manhattan Island is 21 square miles. So literally almost three times the size of Manhattan Island are gone. And it's not until it's not until the summer of 45 that Hirohito finally says, hey, I think we ought to really actually begin talking about a diplomatic way out of this war. So and, and that actually stuns. I mean, you, you have um, Marshall, General Marshall saying, you know, that when he's talking about the atomic attack later on, he's like, you know, we would have thought that the firebombing in Tokyo would have had some sort of political wake up call that we would have been able to see or whatnot. And it didn't. Yeah. And so it is pretty astonishing that, it, it's, again, it's just this callousness of the leadership towards their people to allow this to continue. But there is there is sort of a, a warning mood from Europe, isn't there? When the chiefs of staff get together, that there, there is this idea. Well, look, we did this to the Germans, and they they fought they fought to the to the bitter end, and we had to take you know we in the end the war had to go to the German capital. Um, yeah, and and and, and the, the air force sees this as its sort of its moment, doesn't it? Um, in the summer, right? Okay, now we've really got to we've really got to um, put a foot in the gas and win the win the war. And LeMay, LeMay, of course, doesn't know about the atomic bomb uh, 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 until the, the last minute and he meets Groves and Groves takes him through what they've done and LeMay can't figure out the engineering, even though he has an engineering background, he can't get his head around it. All that stuff, which is absolutely fascinating, but there, but there, there, is, this, there is this sense to say to the airman, look, it, it didn't work in Germany. You're like, you are doing, what you're doing is incredible and brutal and hugely effective, but political will is a different thing. Yeah, and that's it. And in Japan, I mean, the political will is controlled by like half a dozen people. 
Yeah. I mean, that's the thing is like, you know, you have this entire country that's being totally decimated, but the decision to be made to get out of the war really falls to about as many people as are on our Zoom almost. I mean, yeah. It really is yeah, that yeah, small yeah. of a that small of a group. And, you know, and here all this massive amount of pressure is being applied to the civilians. You know, you're you're dehousing, you're 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 emptying out your cities, you're burning, you know, your food your food is vanishing and all this kind of stuff. Like how much can you allow your civilians to suffer? Before you decide to end it, and that's well, really I, 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 I think it's just extraordinary. I mean, you know, one of the, one of the things that the um, the, the you know the, the Allies made clear in the bombing against Germany is is you stop the war, we'll stop the bombing. I mean, you know, you have it in your power <laughs> to stop this tomorrow. I mean, it's yeah. it's it's over. You know, we're not we're, we're not going to obliterate cities if if the war's over. You know, you're not going to win. Uh, and this is this is the extraordinary thing. I mean, you you think about almost any other war. I mean, wars usually end because. One side isn't going to win and it's run out of money. Well, I mean, you know, that situation has been achieved for Nazi Germany, you know, when Barbarossa fails in the autumn of 1941. And, and that, that, is, that has been achieved certainly by the time Guadalcanal's over. Mm. Uh, it's just not going to happen. No, but, you know, they kind of had this idea that if we could just get one more victory, we get a better position at the bargaining table. Yeah. And yeah, what yeah, they really yeah. wanted to do, I mean, Hirohito is desperate to hold on to his throne. Yeah. You know, in the latter part of the war, he's having all his, like, the sacred mirror and sword and all this kind of stuff brought to the palace and guarded. I mean, it really comes down to, like, protecting that position. Yeah. And and, and at the great, great cost. Totally reprehensible, isn't it? I mean, you know, and he just gets away with <laughs> yeah. it. He gets away with it. Yeah. I mean, you know. Yeah. 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 And, well, uh, that's a whole different podcast, getting into, like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. everything else. <laughs> but, yeah, but you're absolutely right. It is. You know, and it's so crazy that they had... Like so much of Japan's thinking throughout the Pacific was just outdated. It was like, you know, if we just get this one great big, you know, naval victory, it'll be like World War One, and we'll, we'll win. And of course, you know, there is this great big naval victory. It's called Midway and they lost it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, every, you know, hey, submarines aren't really good as independent operators. We'll make them part of the fleet. And, you know, never mind the fact that the submarines are like one of the most vicious forms of commerce raiders out there. It's, all their thinking was like. You always say you fight the your your thinking is about the last war you fought. I mean, and you see that over and over and over again with the Japanese that they just the inability to to grasp the current situation and to adapt. Unlike the American Air Force, which adapts and changes and solves its problems as it faces them, and becomes more and more and more deadly. You know, and that's the thing. I, I one of the things I find so interesting about the war in the Pacific, the air war in the Pacific, is you see. Okay, look at what it takes years. For the change to happen in Europe, and you see the change happen in months in the Pacific. I mean, you go from precision bombing, precision bombing's not working, fire bombing, all the way up to nuclear bombing in the span of like nine months. I mean, it's just the the accelerated pace of transformation of air warfare. In the Pacific. I, I'm absolutely sure that's to do with a with to do with the, with the equipment they've got, the you know the arrival of the B29s, yeah. all yeah. the rest of it, and and, and and secondly because the war's just going on and it's time to wrap this thing they're up. Ready to I be mean, done. you yeah, know the, these yeah. bastards <laughs> keep going. You know we need to end this and that needs different weights. And I think you know in the first part of the air war, you, you know people are feeling their way still. They're kind of working out what can be done and what can't be done. By 1945, they know what can be done and what can't be done. And and so I think it's I think it's a lot more clear cut. Yeah, they're they're it's time to end this thing. Particularly when Germany's out, they're like, all right, that's it. We got to end this thing. <laughs> yeah, 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 completely. <laughs> yeah. Well, James, congratulations. I mean, it's yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a stunning piece of work. It really is. A brilliant. Well, thank book. you guys. Yeah, absolutely amazing. Yeah, yeah. And thanks so much for coming on to talk to us about it. I mean, it's uh, it, I mean, it's a horrifying story, but it also I mean, it speaks to the fact that in the end, if you you know. The, the moral questions about if you are going to go to war, this might be what you've got to do, um, ultimately. That, 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 you know, people had fenced around a little and tried to avoid. And that also that this, you know, that the duet idea from the 20s is perhaps actually actually true, but what you need is an atomic bomb to achieve it. And that, that, that you know, that he, he, was, he was seeing well into the future and the technology simply didn't exist to bring his vision about. Yeah, um, absolutely. Uh, but, yeah, but anyway, thank you so much for talking to us. Um, uh, Black Snow, James M. Scott, um, uh, an extraordinary read. Um, and thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll see you all again very, very soon. Bye-bye. Cheerio.